Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. China has a sophisticated and well-funded Department of Propaganda, which recently changed its name to the Department of Publicity. Its primary job is to praise the achievements of Xi Jinping and the Communist Party. But it also keeps itself busy finding things to criticize about other countries, with America the number one target. Chinese media is rife with stories about America's political divisions, violent crimes and alleged corruption. As a result, China likes to take the moral high ground on issues such as human rights, arguing that its system of governance is inherently superior to that of the United States. Not surprisingly, contentious elections, such as the recent US midterms, gain a lot of attention in the Chinese press, and they're not portrayed in a favourable light. Well, joining me on the line from Connecticut near New York is Mark Hanna, a senior fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation. That's a non-profit, non-partisan organisation focused on international relations. Mark, welcome to China in Context. Hello, Duncan. It's so good to be with you. Now, what do you make of the way in which China interprets American politics and society? Yeah, there are two uh, primary ways that the escalation of criticism of American society has has occurred under President Xi Jinping. Uh, but one is, and, and two primary reasons, in, in fact, one is that under under President Xi, uh, power, as you know, has been uh, consolidated, concentrated. There's less room for domestic dissent, uh, and so as is the case with more leaders who tend toward authoritarianism, they they tend to blame external forces, foreign powers for their problems at home. And we're starting to see that uh, in China as well. Also, as the American and Chinese economies continue to decouple, there's a lot less of a diplomatic imperative within Chinese media to be sort of cooler toward the United States. And so we're we're starting to see the rhetoric ratcheted up and and, uh, these, these sort of party outlets are a lot more sharp in their critiques of the U.S., that's a very astute observation. Thanks for starting us off with those ideas. What about the state of American democracy now following the midterm elections? I can easily imagine that outside to outside observers, it, it's easy to criticize, for example, the slow vote counting that's happening in certain counties, uh, in certain states. Uh, the fact that, you know, the, the sort of local control of, of elections in the United States is, is by design, right? It's a very decentralized process. You know, Americans are inherently distrustful of centralized authorities. Of course, the Chinese Communist Party is a centralized bureaucracy, uh, and it's almost the kind of antithesis. I, I do think there is an opening here for the Chinese uh, media to portray the United States election as somehow uh, sloppy or, or disorganized, when in fact, that is in fact a feature, not a bug of the system. We'll have to wait a while to know what happens in terms of the next presidential election in the United States. It could be a rematch between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. What would be the implications of that for U.S. foreign policy if we do enter into another Trump-Biden battle? We're in this era of the politics of of opposition in the United States, right? And and so, uh, whereas it used to be said that, polit- uh, that, that politics, domestic politics would stop at the water's edge, uh, Republicans and, and Democrats would try to 
present a united front to the world, you know, that was a bit of a, of a, a apocryphal uh, characterization. But now more than ever, I think you're going to start to see uh, divisions emerge for the sake of contrast, for the sake of uh, opposition. So the reality is, let's be honest, foreign policy does not loom large around election season. Uh, and so uh, I don't think, you know, I think the next election is largely going to be about the economy and other factors. Now, that said, a, a Republican majority will make it harder, I think, to give financial aid packages to Ukraine, right? The, they'll, keep the, they'll keep the weapons flowing, but I think they're going to look for opportunities to criticize uh, Biden for his largesse on, on behalf of the American people. I also think when, when Republicans take their majority in the Congress and have uh, the wind at their back a little bit uh, going into the 2024 presidential election, they're going to be a bit more hawkish on China. I suspect, yeah, certainly Trump uh, will bring back a little bit of the trade war rhetoric, and I suspect we'll start to see some legislation coming down the pike, which tries to check China's rise uh, economically, if not militarily, through through an increased troop presence in Asia. Oh, absolutely. I think we're seeing plenty of evidence of that so far in terms of the uh, restrictions on the sale of semiconductors and high-tech equipment to China. But, I mean, I teach a course in geopolitics, and I often discuss American issues with our students. Those people come from all over the world. And it always strikes me how up to date they seem on America's shortcomings, even if they live thousands of miles away. My impression is that the foreigners are picking up a lot of bad news from the Americans. So I'm afraid, even though you said there was an idea that perhaps domestic politics stops at the water's edge, what goes on in America is very closely watched by outsiders. Yes, and I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. The fact that democracies tend to air their dirty laundry in public, right? That's something that you don't see in more autocratic regimes that are uh, jealously guarding their secrecy. Uh, democracies are, are, are messy and, and self-correcting modes of government. And in an, a media environment where uh, anybody in, in Beijing or Shanghai that has access to the internet can watch these debates and, and wonder, wow, this, is, this seems very uncivil. This seems very tense or uh, spirited. Um, that's, that's something that's not necessarily a bad thing for the United States to see that uh, democracy is self-correcting. I think in Brazil too, you had just had a major election where there was a transfer of power. And let's not forget, there was no political instability. There was no political violence. I think that is progress coming out of uh, January 6th and what we saw back then. There's a phrase that we often discuss on our course, soft power. Now, I'm actually not very keen on the idea of soft power because it seems to me that being soft is the opposite of being powerful. But anyway, soft power is generally taken to refer to the influence a country has through the media, through the arts and culture, and to some extent business actually. But for all its political problems, it always seems to me that America's soft power is enormously resilient, whereas actually China's international standing is in decline. Right. And I think that uh, is a product of, to some extent, the source of American soft power. It doesn't come from the American federal government itself. It comes from these vibrant and robust culture industries uh, that, you know, granted the government has a role in, in opening up and, and uh, making markets abroad hospitable to those industries. But I, I think you're right that China's international standing might be in relative decline, but it can also be true that its geopolitical influence 
is increasing, right? And that might be getting at the kind of root of your critique of soft power. You know, power is power. It's the ability to get an adversary to do things you want it to do, whether it wants to or not. And so ultimately, these kinds of cultural products, they can they can uh, create goodwill, but unless that goodwill puts pressure or an incentive or disincentive on political leaders to act in in certain ways uh, that are in accordance with American interests, uh, it, it doesn't really, it, it's not really powerful, right? So, but th- we tend to diminish or disregard uh, that goodwill though to our detriment. And I think that uh, when political leaders are boxed in because they're people like America or they like Western culture, that can be uh, useful to the United States. There have been events, though, haven't there, which have impacted the reputation of the United States internationally. Um, One example is the chaotic U.S. evacuation of Afghanistan in the summer of 2021. What do you think are the implications of that for America's rivals and indeed its allies? Right. I think that uh, the Biden administration will uh, under, I mean, I think now that Republicans are taking over Congress, there will be investigations into the kind of shambolic and and disorganized evacuation uh, of Afghanistan. At the same time, the allies who were rightly uh, or understandably frustrated that they weren't notified and coordinated with, if they were paying a modicum of attention to American domestic politics, where these debates have been occurring for so long, where American uh, negotiations with the Taliban uh, had been underway for nearly a decade, uh, they would have anticipated that this was uh, happening. And I think the main message to America's adversaries and to America's allies are that the United States is a bit weary of playing this role of Globocop, right? It, it feels like the responsibilities that it has shouldered uh, have not been shouldered by its wealthy allies. And, and potentially, uh, this could, you're, you're right to suggest, it could embolden uh, America's rivals in the world if it feels like the United States is uh, is not going to check their uh, regional ambitions. When Donald Trump was president, a lot of people felt that America was becoming very insular, partly because of the America first rhetoric and neglecting its international responsibilities. Actually, I took a rather different view because Trump was very active on the world stage and America didn't lose any of its allies. What's your perception? Do you think I'm being a bit too kind to Mr. Trump? No, not at all. I mean, I think, look, the United States, you're absolutely right. The U.S. didn't lose allies. And and at the same time, there was probably an overdue and healthy debate about uh, here in the United States about whether America's network of alliances, which were developed in a, in a very different geopolitical moment, whether they need to be sort of updated for the modern Era. So, you know, Trump in a rather kind of inartful or inelegant uh, fashion sort of opened the door to that that debate in the United States. Uh, and, and he wasn't, and let, let's be clear, you know, he, he wasn't insular or even, a, a, you know, quote unquote isolationist, uh, to use an epithet that others have sort of used to critique him. He didn't ignore America's responsibilities, but rather kind of channeled sort of uh, his voters' frustration that their country shouldered so many of these responsibilities while while others. So when Donald Trump would talk about his America first foreign policy, that wasn't necessarily a statement of isolationism. That was more a statement of a kind of cold, calculating, transactionalist foreign policy that wanted to, uh, to, to conduct affairs in the world 
that were strictly to America's advantage. I really appreciate your analysis of that point. I know that there are people in the United States who feel that America should engage more with China on issues such as climate change. Xi Jinping himself actually sent a letter to the National Committee on United States-China Relations in which he said that China stands ready to work with the United States to find the right way to get along in the new era. Was that simply propaganda? It's hard to say whether something is is pure spin or or there's some sort of underlying intention or sincerity behind it. That's not a matter of kind of empirical verification. So I I don't know is the short answer. Um, I do think we need to start reimagining the U.S.-China relationship uh, and and take it away from the brink of this kind of Cold War uh, cycle of escalation, if if only rhetorical escalation. My last question actually is more of an invitation to share ideas. What are your recommendations for reducing the risk of conflict between China and the United States? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, look, it's, it's sort of a weird spot. I, I heard Jake Sullivan recently at, a, at an event point out that, you know, we're in this awkward position with China where it remains America's largest and most powerful competitor, and yet its largest trading partner, right? So I think there's a, a desire to strive for more of a, a steady state. We have to acknowledge that the U.S.-China relationship isn't one of a kind of zero-sum logic and, and the kinds of challenges that we need to tackle together, whether it's pandemics or it's climate change. Those are things that don't benefit from zero-sum competition. Finally, I'd just say part of the reason China's international standing might not be as as high as the United States is that it's not proposing an ideological alternative to the United States. So while it is offering uh, lines of credit to other countries and while it is starting to flex its muscles as it it grows in confidence, there isn't, uh, as there was in the Cold War, a major ideological competition between competing worldviews. And so I think that's another big reason to recognize we're not in the Cold War and there, there doesn't have to be, there doesn't have to be a natural kind of confrontational logic for our approach to China. Well, thank you, Mark, for joining me for a memorable conversation. I hope that you'll return as a guest on our podcast again soon. That was Mark Hanna, a senior fellow at the Eurasia Group Foundation on the line from Connecticut. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. Mm -hmm.